Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to a celebration of free speech, discussing oral arguments in 303 Creative versus Alenis. Please welcome Sarah Parshall Perry, Senior Legal Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Well, good afternoon to everyone, for those of you who are in person and those of you who are joining us online. Today, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in one of the term's marquee cases, 303 Creative versus Alenis, and in it, civil rights and constitutional law are seemingly at odds with one another. The justices have been asked to decide whether applying a public accommodations law to compel an artist to communicate a message with which she does not agree violates her constitutional rights under the First Amendment. Should the government be able to tell Americans what they can and cannot say? Should artists be forced to express messages they don't believe? Well, my guests here today are going to help us answer those questions, and two of them are attorneys with Alliance Defending Freedom, the law firm that is representing Lori Smith in this case. Jonathan Scruggs is ADF Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. Since joining ADF in 2006, he has prevailed in other cases concerning the rights of individuals to express their beliefs. Colorado's Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights uh, Commission and Brush versus Nib Studios in Phoenix, which he argued before the Arizona Supreme Court. Erin Hawley is a little banged up, but uh, not much worse for wear. She is ADF's senior counsel to the appellate practice group and before joining practice big law at multiple different firms she's litigated extensively before the u.s supreme court worked at the doj as counsel to ag mike mccasey and was an associate professor of law at the university of missouri of perhaps most interest to our group she is also a former law clerk to u.s supreme court chief justice john roberts Roger Severino is Heritage Foundation's Vice President of Domestic Policy. He has joined also the Ethics and Public Policy Center as Senior Fellow in 2021, where he continues to this day. Before joining EPPC, he was Director of the Health and Human Services Department, Office for Civil Rights. He also served from 2017 to 2021, the longest serving OCR director of the past three decades. He's a former trial attorney for seven years at the US Department of Justice. So let's begin. For my panel, because all of you will have different impressions, we heard some very powerful commentary. We heard some fireworks and we heard a lot of hypotheticals. What are your impressions about today's oral arguments? Well, I'll start. Uh, it, it was it was long, and that was one that was my impression. But it, but it was really fascinating. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening was fascinated by all the hypotheticals. Uh, you know, the ones about I think you know some mic drop moments when Colorado is saying you can compel the speechwriter, right, or can mm -hmm. compel the LGBT group to create the website uh, promoting the Catholic group's view of marriage, 
right? Uh, I think those are powerful ones that should resonate. I and mean, of course, you've got to deal with the opposite hypos too. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the underlying message for everybody was, wow, you know, when, when it comes to free speech, it, it's scary when the government can force people to say views mm -hmm. uh, they disagree with. And the limiting principles there uh, should be concerning outside the public accommodation context inside of it. Um, so that was kind of my overarching takeaway. Aaron, as a former clerk to the Chief Justice, was there a particular line of questioning from him that you saw was um, maybe critically important to a potential outcome in this case? Yes, I think in particular, the Chief Justice wrote the decision in Fair versus Rumsfeld, uh, and that case involved the Solemn Amendment, which required law schools to allow military recruiters on campus. And what the court said in that opinion is that access to empty rooms do not speak, uh, so there wasn't a lot of speech involved in that case. And the chief made clear that he thought that situation was very different from the situation in which Lori has to affirmatively imagine and create with her own heart and hands a message uh, and publish it on a website. I'm glad you brought up that case. That was a case that Colorado's relied heavily on in oral arguments, but ADF has relied on a different case that I would love for you to discuss Hurley versus Boston LGBTQ Association, a case from 1996 about expressive conduct in a parade and the ability to include or not include participants in that parade. Can you talk a little bit about how that applies in this case? Sure, so Hurley really is on all fours with this case. Uh, as in Lori's case, Massachusetts was trying to use a public accommodation law to force uh, the Boston Parade organizers to include within their parade contingent a message with which they disagreed. Uh, and the Supreme Court said speech is different, that you cannot compel individuals to speak against their conscience. That's what we protected all the way back from the Barnett sisters who were not be who the government couldn't force to uh, say the pledge, uh, that this is sort of a fundamental principle of self-government. Uh, and, and as John said, it's a scary principle when you have the government mandating orthodoxy and saying what you can or cannot say. Mm -hmm. let, let me add a couple, I think, interesting facts about Hurley. So it is exact same law type of law. Mm -hmm. And so what was actually being compelled there, right? So the LGBT group wanted to put up a banner with their name, just their name, uh, uh, while other groups were putting the names of their groups. So you can see an immediate parallel sure. to some of the hypotheticals that were floating around about, well, what if we just change the names? It's no big deal, no harm, no foul. Well, just the names were changed in Hurley. And, that, and the Supreme Court, in a 9-0 to zero decision, said you, you can't do that. Um, so I, I think there are really some strong parallels uh, to that case. And obviously, it's one we relied on uh, in our briefing and our argument. Roger, what's at stake in this case? How would you distill it down to sort of its, its critical elements that our audience members would care most about? Uh, if you take the, the broader forces at play, there was the underlying question of, is this the same as race, right? Public accommodations law, when we think about it and why civil rights laws apply to it, is because of racism, right? The civil rights struggle and the separate uh, water fountains and bus stations, all of that. So Alito asked, Colorado specifically. So is it fair to compare people who are against same-sex marriage to people who are against interracial marriage? And the Colorado Solicitor General said yes, it was, right? And that's the game right there. It is to try to compare people, larger people of faith, but not exclusively, uh, who stand for the same beliefs that President Obama had, President Biden had just a few years ago, and equate those beliefs to racists and bigots. 
um, that's really what's at stake in the larger picture of things. And you, it was interesting because then the U.S. Solicitor General's office did some damage control. And they said, no, 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 we don't actually want to equate people who believe in same sex, against same-sex marriage to racists, right? But the game was up. The mask was off. We, we knew what, what's really going on, what's at stake. And that explained a lot of the hypotheticals. And there were some really interesting ones, right? If you ever follow Saturday Night Live and Stefan, there was, this place had everything, right? So you had, you had a hypothetical of a African-American Santa Claus in you know, the, the department stores and asked what if they had to have a kid wearing a KKK costume on the Santa's lap? Or uh, JDate, which is a website for Jewish uh, people, and Ashley Madison. And then you had Katanji Brown Jackson bring up a hypothetical about It's a Wonderful Life and a photographer who wants to make it some sort of like allegory of white supremacy and say only white people in this It's a Wonderful Life photography business. It was, it, it bordered on bizarre sometimes, but um, it was all about the hypotheticals and which mm -hmm. hypothetical was going to win out. And that's why KBJ and others kept pushing the race angle. Isn't this like, well, race is different. Even Obergefell said, race is different than people who believe in one man, one woman marriage. Uh, we'll see what prevails ultimately. I think most justices on this court, based on oral argument, are going to say that 303 Creative will win. It'll be really interesting to say what they, how they deal with the race question. Mm -hmm. So this is the exact same law, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, that Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop was charged with violating, and he's been up to the Supreme Court multiple times. His journey is still not finished. But in this unique situation, Lori Smith has she's filed what's called a pre-enforcement challenge. And the first line of questioning seemed to be dedicated toward making sure she had standing to actually bring the suit because there was no same-sex couple seeking a custom website. Does she have an issue with standing? Uh, I'll take that one. I mean, I don't think so. I think Kristen said it rightly. This is one of the easiest cases for standing. Uh, uh, you know, so Lori, obviously, same state as Jack Phillips. She's been on the front row of seeing how Colorado has enforced its, uh, its law for 10 years, and it hasn't been very friendly to people of faith like Lori. So there's just no doubt that there's a credible threat of enforcement. And then we add on some other things, uh, maybe the fact that they've been trying to enforce the law against Lori or saying that they can enforce against the law against Lori for the past six years in this case. They stipulated uh, below, uh, even at, or admitted at the at oral argument at, at the district court, that uh, the communication clause would forbid her from posting her statement. Uh, so I just don't see how there's any basis in standing. In fact, uh, the courts below are unanimous. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Arizona Supreme Court, all found standing in similar situations. Uh, because she can't operate her business, she can't say what she wants to do, she can't create websites uh, without being, you know, without violating the law as Colorado understands it. And that would trigger all these penalties. Aaron, what's your perspective on some of the particular factual distinctions that were made? There seems to be a theme of making that distinction between what is pure, for example, sales or conduct and what is speech. So here she's clearly selling a service, but it expresses a marriage. It expresses the approval of, the celebration of a marriage. Where does the court draw that line? So, so I think that's the major point of contention between the parties. And if you look at Colorado's argument, what they're essentially saying is that if you open up a business in America, you lose your First Amendment rights. 
they say that if you open up a business, you're a public accommodation, and thus the government can tell you what to say. Um, in response, Lori says no, <laughs> the First Amendment applies. And I think the court uh, was really concerned with Colorado's broad construction mm -hmm. uh, of the law of public accommodations. And you, of course there's hard hypotheticals, but the court always has to decide the line between speech and conduct. Uh, that line is not hard in this case. Uh, in a case called Reno, the Supreme Court said that websites are speech. They have words, they have pictures, they have hand-drawn graphics in Lori's case. So we clearly have a speech here. Colorado even stipulated to that. So this is a, an easy case from that perspective. There will be harder ones, but, but Lori's clearly speaking through her website. Yeah, and maybe to jump on that, uh, you know, you see that dispute, or some people seem to be confused about what's actually, what's the actual service, or what does the website look like? Right. And uh, like Aaron was saying, uh, I think Justice Gorsuch's questions brought this out. Like, hey, why don't we, we look to what was agreed upon and, and read the stipulation? There are hundreds, over 100 stipulated facts, that, which means basically the state of Colorado agreed. They didn't have to agree. They could have said, no, we, we disagree with these facts. Right. Right, but they didn't. They said they're true. And those true facts are every website she creates is expressive, contains text, words, images, tells the couple's love story, uh, we put, uh, you know, for example, she put a, a mock kind of uh, website that Justice Sotomayor read. We can probably talk about that. Um, so uh, it's pretty hard to say that words and photographs uh, about a marriage is not expressing something. Yeah, and that was, I thought, very interesting because Colorado was stipulating to the very thing that caused their argument to weaken, right? So if there's a custom element to every website. It's clear she isn't just performing what's called by Sonia Sotomayor a plug-and-play website service, that she really does involve her artistic abilities in every creation. Um, I thought it was very interesting, and Roger, I'd love to get your perspective on this. It was clear from Justice Gorsuch's line of questioning uh, with Attorney Olson that he is no fan of how Colorado has been treating people of faith. Talk a little bit about, Roger, if you would, the history with Jack Phillips and his own battles trying to be essentially an artist with integrity while at the mm -hmm. same time not running afoul of Colorado law. Yeah, this is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the Baker case. After Obergefell, there was a question of, okay, how far does it go? Is it going to be a live and let live type of situation where you have same-sex marriage, civilly recognized, but if you disagree, you'll be left alone. Turns out, you won't be left alone, and you'll be hounded, usually through public accommodation laws. So if you engage in a business, can you take your faith beliefs with you? And in that particular case, that was a free exercise case. This one is free speech. There, he could not, in good conscience, participate in a custom cake that would celebrate a same-sex uh, marriage. That was pretty clear what it was. He won that case at the Supreme Court. Now, it wasn't as broad a decision as we would have liked. There was some indications of animus on the part of Colorado from the anti-religious statements, comparing them essentially to Nazis. And you know, when you pull the Nazi card, you're you're usually losing. Um, <laughs> but they pulled it out, right? And and then so the question is, what if they weren't so foolish to put it on the record? Um, those sorts of things. But even so, he won there. Of course, the activists kept going after him. And then they required, asked him to, ba to bake a gender reveal cake uh, for transgender, you know, camera the details, couple, et cetera. But it was, a, it, it was a transgender cake, right? So didn't know such a thing existed, but they wanted one custom made. He, of course, declined. And now he's being 
hounded again. And Justice Gorsuch mentioned that he was required to undergo re-education by the state of Colorado the first time around. That was part of the deal when he was found in violation of the public accommodation. He'd have to do re-education. And the Colorado attorney pushed back, but Gorsuch was like, no, that, that's what it is. It's re-education because it's this propaganda that where the state, once it has the power and the authority, and it says, my way or the highway, that's what ends up happening. We start looking like authoritarian states when you have wrong think. And again, this is ultimately what it's about. It's not just live and let live, it's you must think the way the government wants you to think. And that's why this case is so important. Must you not only undergo re-education, must you mouth it with your own words or create something with your own hands that mm -hmm. contradicts your very beliefs? Aaron, I have a question for you. In their brief, the state of Colorado talked about its modifications to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, or CADA, and they've said, well, we're now more protective of different essentially religious perspectives or different philosophical beliefs. How do you answer that CADA is more protective now of differing opinions than it was before? Well, so long as those opinions aren't those of Lori. Um, <laughs> and I think we saw this throughout the argument. Um, even the United States agreed that if you have a message-based exception, as a business owner, you should be able to say, look, I don't create that message for anyone. Um, they said that with a straight face, and that's precisely what Lori asked to do. Uh, Lori creates websites for all sorts of people from all walks of life. She has LGBT clients, but her religious beliefs are that marriage is simply between one man and one woman, so she can't create a same-sex website. So I think Lori's case fits precisely within the United States sort of message-based protection for speech, and I think the court will go that way. I think it was interesting that Gorsuch said it's not the who, but the what. And that was really, for me, I think one of the most compelling takeaways because it really distilled the case down to its essential elements. She serves everyone equally. But in the transmission of a particular message related to her beliefs on the sanctity of marriage, that she cannot do. And I would love your perspective, Jonathan, on the fact that there were some hypotheticals presented on heterosexual couples coming to a marriage with differing backgrounds. Yeah, and I think you saw, I think, uh, Justice Barrett asked some of those questions, uh, and eventually Colorado had to concede, yeah, we, we, we would compel that. You know, if a, an LGBT group or couple, uh, you know, they wanted to promote only, you know, LGBT uh, weddings or marriages, that the government, the Colorado could compel them to say something different. And I think that's exactly the problem, right? <laughs> uh, and to go back to, maybe quickly to go back to Aaron's point, the key thing here is Lori won't speak certain message for anybody. So the same messages are on the menu for everybody, if you, if you want to use that kind of phraseology, right? She's treating everybody the same because she's offering the same messages for everybody. Just like that LGBT, you know, uh, uh, business that was concocted or the, uh, you know, another example is just religion. Think about the, the religious examples that were coming up. You know, if a, if a Muslim, you know, calligrapher or poster designer says, I'm not going to create any me messages um, uh, inconsistent with Islam, that doesn't mean the government can force that Muslim calligrapher to write something promoting Judaism, right? Because that uh, calligrapher won't do that for anybody. Mm -hmm. That's the exact same as the speechwriter, as Lori, as all these examples, which just highlights it really is about the message, it's not about the messenger. So question for the panel. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is sort of what the implications of this decision might have on pending legal challenges and the notion of censorship or compelled speech 
in other contexts? What might the landscape look like one way or the other, depending on how the court rules in this case? Well, I'll, I'll keep talking. I know I talk too much. Um, I'm a lawyer. Uh, uh, so obviously, we have a lot of the uh, cases that are very similar. They're still pending involving photographers. You know, public accommodation laws are spreading uh, in terms of scope. Uh, 19 of them have political ideology, uh, 19 jurisdictions, 20% uh, of the state of Maryland. The court has interpreted the state of California to have a political ideology component in his public accommodation law. Uh, so they have very broad implications. We've even seen them apply to beauty pageants. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a recent case coming out of the Ninth Circuit that protected the right of a beauty pageant to select who could participate in the same way that Hamilton, the Hamilton play, you could imagine. Uh, in fact, I know, I think a while back, the state of New York or city of New York uh, sent a threatening letter to the Hamilton play, uh, warning them they might be in violation of the, the city public accommodation law, if I remember that correctly. But we've seen, for example, there was a lesbian baker in Detroit who was requested to create a cake that said homosexuality is an abomination, right? Could that lesbian baker be forced to put that on a, on a cake? Under Colorado's theory, I think uh, probably so. Yeah. Uh, so it, it starts there, but of course goes into many other avenues of law. Anytime the government comes to court and says, look, we've got a compelling interest to protect people, uh, invoking the kind of anti-discrimination norm, uh, this, court, this case could affect that. Uh, you know, how valuable is free speech? How, va how valuable is the right to disagree and to hold firm to your convictions? And that goes to a lot of different areas. And I think a, a big question is status versus conduct versus pure speech. Mm -hmm. Those were three big issues that were discussed and the scope of public accommodations. The Solicitor General for the, for the United States said that it is inextricably intertwined when you have a same-sex union that it is based on the status of the participants in that, that you, you can't separate it. Uh, whereas a lot of people would say, no, you can't separate it. Right? The union itself is expressive and it's sending a message and it implicates beliefs. It's not just a person's status. And this is going to come up in all sorts of other contexts. So we're seeing this in healthcare. The Biden administration wants to require doctors to perform cross-sex surgeries, including on minors. Right? Um, and then the question is, well, is that status or conduct? Like, what is, what is being done there? Is it the you know, denial of a service based on transgender status, or is that doctors don't want to do this sort of surgery, right? So those sorts of questions, and no matter the identity, it doesn't matter the identity, it's healthy tissue, right? These are the sorts of questions, some of which came up in the speech context that I see have much application further down the road. We just had the you know, unfortunately named Respect for Marriage Act that just passed the Senate, and there, again, it's equating same-sex marriage with interracial marriage, right? And then the question is also going to be, okay, is this so inextricably intertwined that any dissent from same-sex marriage is equivalent to races, and what's going to happen for those who disagree? So I think big thing to, to look out for is whatever happens, and I think through its creative will win, what is going to be said about the merits of those views? Mm -hmm. Is it simply going to be it's just pure neutrality, you know, anything goes, or will be, knowing the context, say something about, like Justice Kennedy said, these are decent and honorable people holding decent and honorable premises on marriage. It's different than race. I hope they go out and say that. 
And Kristen Wagoner sort of alluded to the promise of Obergefell. And so many of us, I think, feel as though the promises that we received at the time, that decent and honorable people can hold reasonably differing perspectives on the notion of same-sex marriage based on their religious or their philosophical beliefs is sort of slipping away. And I think that was something that was critically important to some of the things that she said, Erin. Would you agree? Absolutely. And if you look again at the history in Colorado, I think it was 24 days after the masterpiece decision came down uh, that they sued Jack Phillips again. And just, just this sort of uh, continued onslaught against people who disagree uh, with Colorado's view of, of marriage. And uh, the Solicitor General of the United States sort of pointed to this parade of horribles that might happen if we allow free speech. But to me, the much more frightening thing is to allow government to decide what we can say and what not to say. Uh, really, it's foundational to our ability to self-government. It, it you know, anchors all of our rights to free uh, religion, uh, free association. Everything else depends on the ability to speak and say according to our own conscience. So one of the arguments that was advanced by Colorado is that it has a compelling interest in eliminating the dignitary harm of discrimination. What do you think the court is likely to do with that argument? Because it is sort of a finer point on precisely the issue to which the state of Colorado is hoping to get. We don't want discrimination against people. Of course, ADF's response is, we also don't want compelled speech, but that notion of eliminating dignitary harms, what do you think the court is likely to do with that? So I think there's two responses, and one is that Lori does not discriminate. She willingly serves everyone, and she has the LGBT clients that she works with on other issues. So I think that's the first point. Um, and then the second point is that the court has never found a dignitary interest to be an com interest compelling uh, that, that allows for the compulsion of speech. I faced the very same question in Hurley um, and in other cases like Masterpiece. That's a great distinction because it has, in the case of sex discrimination and in the case of race discrimination, required the alteration of behavior, but never the alteration of speech, treating speech as distinct among those first of our Bill of Rights freedoms. And I think even from this past term, we saw two very strongly protected First Amendment cases, the case of the cussing cheerleader and the case of the praying coach, both of whom in two different contexts, while obviously both related to education, but we had Justice Breyer, that liberal lion, saying that classrooms are the nurseries of democracy and that maintaining protection for disparate perspectives and views and sort of speech is essential to a pluralistic society. Are you hopeful that the court may sort of hearken to something as recently as a few months ago and decide again that compelled speech is something they don't want to partake in? I think being, being exposed to contrary views is one of the foundational premises of our democracy. Mm -hmm. That's not really what's at stake here. It's being forced to say something you don't want to say. So it's even one step worse than having an <coughs> open marketplace of ideas and being exposed to things, right? But forcing people to go contrary, and that's, that's a step much different. It's different in kind. And I think, I hope the court will recognize that. Now, the question of dignitary harms. Well, when you have so many options for wedding designers and cakes, et cetera, wouldn't you want somebody who actually has their heart in it for you to give you the best product, the best design? 
um, or is it that you want to drive them out of business and take away their livelihood, right? Which is exactly what's happening here with Jack Phillips, et cetera. So Jonathan, let me ask you about this notion of sort of the competing interests of civil rights law and constitutional guarantees. Are we likely to see more of this in the future as public accommodations laws expand? Or are we, if for example, Lori Smith is successful at the Supreme Court, are we finally going to see sort of a pumping of the brakes on the notion of forcing individuals to express ideas or to violate their sincere religious consciences under the auspices of preventing discrimination? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I hope, I hope it's the latter in the sense that, I mean, that's one of the goals, right, of, of this, uh, of to get the court to make clear uh, that, you know, it, the First Amendment is the Constitution. A statute doesn't trump the Constitution. Uh, is, is the bottom line, and this is a you know a win-win scenario. I think, as we noted before, other we don't it, it's not like we don't know what's going to happen here. Um, you know, we uh, you know other states, 20 states have uh, adopted our approach, and it's been okay. Uh, they've protected message-based objections and stopped status discrimination. Mm -hmm. Right, the world hasn't ended. We've won cases at the A Circuit, at the Arizona Supreme Court, and elsewhere, and so. You know, we shouldn't jettison our rights to free speech, uh, you know, today just in, uh, to accomplish certain goals that are not, you know, within the, the framework of the First Amendment. Uh, so I think it's, it's, there's a win-win option out there. There were a lot of sort of parades of horribles um, taking place in the hypotheticals, one of which was specifically related, as we mentioned briefly before, to the race issue. Uh, and I think the greatest fear that we're seeing from the state of Colorado is the notion that, and ACLU I know has advanced these arguments as well in its own briefing, that there is the potential to return to the Jim Crow era. Right, and that is, of course, something that none of us sitting on this stage would ever want. Talk to me a little bit, Aaron and Roger, about how likely something like that would be, or if this is a unique and distinguishable circumstance. Absolutely the latter. I think there's zero chance for going back to Jim Crow days, those awful days, and for, for two primary reasons. First, uh, when you think about the cases at Ollie's Barbecue and those sorts of examples, you're talking about restaurants or hotels that were refusing to serve black Americans because of their race. Uh, that is not what this case is about. This case is about being able to speak a message. Lori, again, willingly serves everyone um, from all walks of life, and I think that's what the court will say. When you have a message that's much different than conduct, it's very far from the traditional public accommodation laws that apply to things like inns, uh, that apply to railroads, um, sometimes skating rinks, but always types of, in, uh, of uh, businesses that held them out to the public as sort of a quasi-public duty, mm -hmm. so these types of common carriers. Uh, so that's not on the table, um, and instead we're talking about message-based exceptions. Yeah, and I agree with that. And another basic point, we had a civil war over race, right? And that's been part of our history. We've been trying to fight back the racism from those times, and we've made tremendous progress, and part of the solution of that was our anti-discrimination laws. It would be one thing to say, yes, we support vigorous enforcement on the race questions because of that history. Quite another to say that those who believe in man-woman marriage are the same thing and are equivalent. And that's why the statement from the Colorado SG was so shocking. Um, and, and it was so troubling because they are equating it as being the same thing. And you have to think about the question on the merits. Now, 
this is a free speech case. It's framed as value neutral. Okay, fine. But you still, on this question, have to think, is there something different about same-sex marriage itself? What is the nature of that union, et cetera? And can you distinguish it from status? And I think you absolutely can, right? Uh, marriage, we've known it for millennia as an institution and what its purposes have been. And only very recently, in the blink of an eye, have, has a new understanding even come to the fore. But to say that all those people who had those beliefs for millennia and still do are equivalent to racists, including Obama and Biden, who, again, only a few years ago, for the majority of their lives, believed the same thing about marriage as I and many others do, to call them the equivalent of bigots and racists is wrong. And I think the court should take a step on the merits of the question about marriage in particular, because it is so important to our society that to say that those who have those honorable and decent beliefs cannot be excluded and hounded, uh, leaving aside under a value-neutral First Amendment, of course, every, everybody's views get protected. But this particular view is special for another reason, and we got to recognize that history as well. I have many more questions, but I want to give our audience a chance to weigh in. And we have um, two staffers who will be walking around with microphones, so just raise your hand if you've got something to say. In the back here. Oh, I had a quick question um, about political beliefs, deeply held political beliefs, not just religious beliefs. So under Colorado law, would a person be compelled to act uh, against their political beliefs? Um, for example, could a left-leaning baker be forced to bake a cake that said Trump won the 2020 election? So not under Colorado, well, we make the distinguish here, Colorado's law and Colorado's theory. So Colorado's law doesn't itself make uh, political belief a protected ideology, but they could just add it tomorrow. And 19 states do. And, and, and exactly, 19 jurisdictions okay. do. So if you're in one of those jurisdictions, all bets are off, right? You, you want to, KKK, uh, tr uh, you know, things along a whole spectrum uh, that someone could be compelled. And, you know, can you imagine the kind of conscience harm that it would cause to call, I mean, I just think about how Lori's process, to sit down, to have to imagine, write, create, publish on the internet something that violates the core of what you believe and something that you condemn. That is the state position of the Colorado. And I think it's, it's shocking and should frighten all of us. Other questions? I saw a couple of hands over here. Right here, Caroline. Hello. I have another hypothetical. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we see a rise in transgenderism. So what if a man becomes a woman, and then he wants, she wants to get married to a man, what will Lori do with that uh, hypothetical? I think that would likely be a question for, for Lori, but, but she would decide that consistent with her religious beliefs, and our position would be that the Colorado cannot enforce its own government views uh, on that website. As the Ninth Circuit, in a, yeah. a, a somewhat similar case, <laughs> has addressed in a beauty pageant context. Yeah, in fact, the, the Green case, uh, Green versus Miss United States Association, that was precisely what the Ninth Circuit panel held. I know there's a petition for unbound uh, rehearing currently pending, but again, beauty pageants were considered to be expressive conduct. They are transmitting a message about what they believe to be ideal womanhood. They were well within their rights, according to the Federal Circuit Court, to be able to say, we won't include uh, transgender females. 
and, and here's where the compelled speech comes in on gender identity. Force use of pronouns, right? Can, will, will all of us be required to address a person who's biologically male, and we know to be biologically male, as she, right? By the power of government, could we be fined, et cetera? That is a form of compelled speech. So again, it's not that far of a step from same-sex marriage, where they say conduct and <coughs> status are inextricably intertwined to the same thing with transgender identity. Again, it goes, I think the truth of the matter matters tremendously. But the other point is, you are gonna be forced to say something, forced. And that's something we're all gonna have to face very soon. Other questions, down here in front. Hi, um, the Bostic decision, redefining sex, what potential negative or other evil arguments could the other side make that may impact on this? Not that I want to give them any ammo or ideas. I mean, they're, <coughs> unfortunately, the other side is just as smart as we are, but anyway. Well, I can, I can offer um, my brief thought, and then I want to hear from people who are actually litigating in this space. Bostock was limited to employment discrimination and only employment discrimination, and the court was very careful to limit its rationale. But again, we didn't have the intersection of the First Amendment and anti-discrimination law. And in fact, when Gorsuch wrote the opinion, he said distinctly, RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is not before us. That wasn't a claim that was raised at the Supreme Court level. So we have yet to see how that will play out at the highest court. Uh, yeah, I, t I totally uh, agree with that. Um, of course, that didn't stop Colorado from citing it in their briefs and the Department of Justice from <laughs> citing their briefs. I think one kind of mic drop moment for me, actually, is the one, Roger, you mentioned in the argument when the Department of Justice admitted that when there is a message that is about a protected class that the government couldn't compel that. Uh, so, th and that, that essentially, you know, it, think about religion uh, in that situation. Like people, you could say, again, that Muslim example who refused, who doesn't want to convey a message celebrating Judaism, okay? That's the situation, but that's this case. That's 303 Creative, right? It's about the message, not about the person. Because Lori serves people in the LGBT, uh, uh, she has LGBT clients, she serves people in the LGBT community, in Colorado stipulated, which means agreed, that she makes her decisions based on the message and not the person, it lines up perfectly. In that sense, I think the Department of Justice just undercut Colorado's entire argument. Uh, and they, they, in many ways, conflict with each other. Yeah, and I think the left is gonna say, after Bostock, the message is the person, or the person is the message, right? And then everybody has to go along. That, that's, the conceptual move that they're making. They just conflate it all, where what I found, and your clients are the perfect example, you could very easily say, well, there's a message and then there's a person. We love the person, we treat everybody equally. It's a message we don't get on board with. I, I mean, people of reasonable intelligence could all see that, but if you want to be you know, a, a bit antagonistic about it, you want to collapse it as much as possible and say you can't separate the message from the person. Now, flip side, people of faith and people of conviction, when they speak the message, that affects them as a person, right? So you could also flip it on them. If you make me say this, you're hurting my integrity as a human being or as a person of faith, my relationship with the God, all sorts of things. By making me speak this, you're attacking me as a person as well. Other questions? 
down in front here. I'm just curious as to your thoughts about the two legal teams in presenting their cases as far as the quality of their arguments and the persuasiveness, if you could compare and contrast them. <laughs> so, so I guess I'm biased. <laughs> uh, we were, we were uh, able to help with the case. But I, I think the court got a very good uh, sort of uh, argument laying out what the party's claims were. Um, from Lori Smith's position, uh, again, she serves everyone. Uh, she just wants to be able to speak according to her conscience. Uh, and as Justice Gorsuch encapsulated, it's the what, not the who. So I think that came through really strongly. I think Kristen Wagner's rebuttal was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, she really made the point that it, there's no question about who's speaking. Uh, at least both people are speaking. Uh, certainly the court has held that websites are speech. They contain words, they contain pictures, they contain graphics. Uh, Colorado agrees it's expressive. Uh, so I think all of those uh, sort of factors really play into the court's former cases uh, and say the court should protect her speech. Uh, Colorado tried to narrow its argument. I think one of Justice Alito said, you know, you've narrowed it down to the sliver. Like, what, what are you really trying to protect? Um, and they really tried to punt and say, you know, maybe Lori is not a public accommodation, to which they stipulated. They, they tried to throw all these extraneous things. Um, but, but the reality is that all of their theories force Lori Smith to create speech with which she disagrees. Uh, the court, at least six of them, seemed uh, on board with that. Even Justice Kagan was concerned about the custom speech uh, that Colorado says it can force uh, Lori to create. Um, and as both John and Roger have mentioned, the United States really kind of cuts against Colorado because the United States would protect custom-made speech and custom messages, uh, which I think is what Lori has here. Yeah. Other questions? Down here, Kelly. Kelly Stimson, the Heritage Foundation. This is a look around the corner question. So much like we've seen <clears throat> law schools now deciding to drop the LSAT, probably in anticipation of the Harvard and UNC cases going the way they don't want them to go. Let's do the same mental exercise here. What will states like Colorado and other states be doing? And I'll direct this to Roger, my colleague, first. Uh, how, how does the other side think, and what anticipatory steps might they be taking already? Well, we thought after Fulton that there may be some shenanigans done there. This was the adoption case uh, on same-sex issues as well. There we saw Philadelphia back off, right? The court left them some wiggle room to try again and take away exceptions and make it a, a, a flat rule. They didn't. So I was encouraged by that, right? So perhaps some folks on the other side will be more careful in choosing their battles. Colorado, I'm not confident they would. They've been not, they, they're obsessed. They're obsessed with this issue. They keep going, they keep going back, they keep going back to the well, and it'll move, if not same-sex marriage, it'll go on the issue of transgenderism. Uh, I'm not sure they'll ever stop. Aaron and Jonathan, do you agree? They, they've certainly aggressively pursued Jack Phillips and, and everyone else with that view. Yeah. One more question. Uh, J.P. I'm wondering where are the lines as citizens with the idea of concept, your rights are from your creator, on a moral authority, regardless of sex and union, if it's a naturalism versus a mind of God, how do you have a right to object to it being not in a work moral authority with the union? Um, those are a naturalism versus rights from God, uh, religious liberty. 
so I think you could have two potential claims. Uh, one could be a free exercise of religion claim. Uh, that case was in the lower courts. The Supreme Court did not grant review of that question. Uh, the free speech claim is more value neutral. Um, and the idea is that it's always dangerous for the government to tell people what to say. And there's this right to self-autonomy. Um, Justice Alito said in Janus that compelling people to speak against their conscience is always demeaning because it betrays their convictions. So in that sense, the free speech clause is value neutral, but, but the government can't compel uh, against one's beliefs. One more question, I lied. We've got, we've got about two minutes left. Each one of your favorite moments, it could be personal or in context uh, for Lori. I would say during oral arguments, for me, it was the fiery exchange between Gorsuch and Olson on the fact that they had to send uh, Jack Phillips to re-education camp. So he was, this was sort of a nod to the fact that he knew for uh, Colorado that the jig was up. <laughs> uh, I'll go with just the discussion about speechwriters. Uh, I'm just going to nerd out, uh, if you know, for a first minute lawyer here. I mean, because this issue came up at the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and Colorado is going to do it. And I think what actually that notion does it explodes this concept of like, well, no one would know whose speech it is, or it's the speech of the client. Well, if that's the rule, then we might as well just, you know, put some TNT in the First Amendment and explode it, right? Because think about this: publishers, speechwriters, uh, other like newspapers. In that context, uh, you don't know. You know, the New York Times runs an op-ed under someone else's name. Does that mean the New York Times has no First Amendment rights? That doesn't make any sense. And that would mean the government could compel almost any speech. Right? If you are a commissioned speechwriter or commissioned any type of artist, the government could compel you to say anything whatsoever. And that just can't be right. So that kind of that moment of like highlighting the absurdity of where we are, that we're arguing that speechwriting is conduct, like that's where we are mm -hmm. in uh, you know, this, uh, this year, it, it was just kind of a, an amazing moment, I thought. Yeah, and on newspapers in particular, a publisher, one of the questions was, would the New York Times be required under Colorado to run only marriage announcements for same-sex um, for all couples during Pride Month? What if they wanted to do just same-sex couples on Pride Month? And Colorado said no, they'd be required because that'd be status discrimination. They could they'd have to do all comers. Well, interesting in, in hearing what the New York Times, the First Amendment champion, they they pride themselves on being. What what their response is to that? Erin, your closing thoughts, sort of what you thought was a great moment. For my part, I really love Justice Barrett's hypotheticals because her hypotheticals made clear that um, people of faith uh, or people of conscience could have objections to messages and not to the people who are asking them to speak. So it really differentiated. She talked about, you know, maybe um, a couple that had met and put their love story together, that they divorced their former spouses and, and were just, you know, ready to get married. Um, and that's something that Lori probably wouldn't create uh, because that's also against uh, her religious beliefs that are core to who she is. And I just love that, that she really encapsulated that this is about the message that Lori wants to create, not about who's requesting it. Well, thanks to everyone who was able to join us in person today. Thanks also to our online audience. Let's give our panelists applause. <laughs>